Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for joining us for an hour of science in the studio with me today. I actually have a team in here, which is wild stuff. Dr. Linden, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Are you okay? You've got three other people in here with you. Deep the, breaths. This hazmat suit will protect me. <laughs> <laughs> trust, trust you guys as far as I can throw. Oh, no, that's not true. Good morning, Dr. Stacey. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. You've come a fair way. You travel. I, I did. I travelled in and um, I love travelling in today because it's it's hard waste day in Brunswick. Oh, oh my god. I think it's been I've seen hard waste for a, a few weeks actually. Maybe it's cycling oh, really? through the through the sub, you know, through the streets, but um yeah, would yeah. you pick some stuff up? No, no. It's always a distraction. You're sort of look, looking look, left I, and right. I've got three lawnmowers yeah. <laughs> and a barbecue. Yeah, well done. Dr. Ray, good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. Nice to see you. <laughs> good to see you too. Now folks, we've got uh, a couple of guests coming up a little bit later some really interesting topics assuming uh, everyone remembers the daylight savings changes. I was having a look today I was showing my wife how it works in Australia because she's from America. And I said, you know, there's like five or six time zones in this country. And so we've got a guest today from South Australia. That's a little tricky, you know. So I think we'll be okay, assuming um, Mark Stoff understands how to do time zones okay. We'll see. Should be fine. And we've got some news. And Dr. Linden's going to do a good story for us later in the show. But we're going to start with some news. Lyndon, do you want to... Yeah, I can kick us off, definitely. I'm I'm going to start with some good news this week. I just wanted to give a massive congratulations to the team at the Royal Botanic Gardens who this week managed to solve an orchid-related mystery. I don't know if you saw this in the news this week. I know. Yeah, really? On the scale of mysteries, orchid scale ones are definitely up there. So this was... um, this was a finding about a leek orchid, right? It's a lemon-scented leek orchid. It's called the mignonette leek, leek orchid. So it's kind of a a stalk with little orchid flowers all around it. They're quite they're quite beautiful and very rare. There used to be uh, lots and lots of species of leek orchids across Australia, and now there's only a few, and they're almost all very very endangered. And this one species was first found in the 1920s in a a small area near Omeo, but the last sighting of this orchid in the wild was in about 1933. So it had been assumed that it had gone extinct. Mm. Very sad. Chalk it up with all of the other things that are going extinct. And then after the Black Summer bushfires, the government gave about half a million dollars to researchers to go and do some surveys to look for about 14 orchid species in Victoria and New South Wales and and on Kangaroo Island. And so they collected a bunch of different samples, including up in Kosciuszko, they collected some samples of a different type of leek orchid that was first discovered in 2000. But the team at the Royal Botanic Gardens, which is actually the world's biggest orchid regeneration project, um, we do so much work here in Victoria and we have so many, we've got over a a thousand orchid species across really? Australia compared to 200 in North America. Hmm. Like our, yeah. they're tiny, they're fragile. Leading the world. Oh, they're <laughs> in our recovery, you mean? <laughs> in the number we've got. Yeah, in the number yeah. we've got, yeah. 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 And the yeah. number that need help, I suppose, yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah, Leading the world there too. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, so uh, these researchers at the gardens and at La Trobe University, they examined 14 samples that they'd taken from Kosciuszko and 13 samples of this mignonette orchid that um, they had in the herbarium, right? These, you know, nearly 100-year-old pressings. And mm. they looked at about 41 different traits and realised that there's actually the same orchid. Hmm. It's the same. So they found it. They found it. Yeah, it had just been a case of mistaken identity this whole time. So our beautiful mignonette orchid was is not extinct. It's just um, in a few different places that we didn't know about before. And, you know, this, this is really good. Still... Very much endangered, yep. but uh, now there are a few more places that we can find it, which yeah. which is really good. My parents are crazy orchid hunters. Uh, they're probably orchid hunting today, even though it's raining. And so this is a good a good result for people who spend their winters and springs on their knees, crawling around in the bush, trying to find these beautiful rare flowers. Very cool. Yeah. I always love it when I learn a new term on the show: orchid hunter. Orchid hunter. Yeah, that should be a show. That should be on Netflix. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I wish there was a word. You know how a bird watcher is a twitcher. Yeah. There needs to be a word for an orchid hunter, but I don't know what Awkward. it is. 
awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Probably. That was quick, wasn't it? That was yeah, quick. Yeah, it's a Sunday morning, accurate. but that was quick. It's because I got the extra hour sleep. Indeed. <laughs> Dr. Ray, what do you I got for us? Well, um, I sort of used that extra hour of sleep. You could squeeze in an extra hour of work. Um, so... Uh, let me get that little violin. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I hear you, though. I hear you. Yeah. Most people are doing the same. Yeah. yeah. A story caught my eye today because I, more than 20 years ago, I worked in a, a startup company that was using membrane technology to separate gases. Uh, and, and so when I say membrane here, you could think of it as the same concept as a coffee filter where it lets one thing through and holds another thing back, uh, except membranes for gases have really tiny holes in them, so they're able to, to separate gas molecules. So the holes are kind of about the sizes of the gas molecules. And um, the, the two key things in, in, in membranes that separate gases are things like how quickly you can get it through the membrane, which is called its permeability, and then how, much, how well it separates one gas over another, which is called selectivity. Now, when I was working, and we were trying to develop things like how to make a lightweight oxygenator. So instead of having to carry around a gas tank with you, could you actually just enrich the oxygen in the air by separating out some of the nitrogen? And these could make lightweight, fast ways to concentrate a gas. So um, what I saw this year today was uh, researchers from North Carolina State were looking at how to concentrate carbon dioxide. Now, carbon dioxide comes in like gas flues and things like that, where it's a waste stream, it's 1% to 20% carbon dioxide. But to be really able to process it or even on-sell it and use it as a subsequent product, we have to concentrate it up to like mm. 90%. And to do this can be expensive because most CO2 membranes that work now are really good on the throughput. They have high permeabilities. They can get lots through, but the selectivity is not fantastic. So that we don't have that cheap, robust, scalable technology that can actually let us enrich carbon dioxide and, and the other ways we can do it uh, in, are chemically work, but they're pretty energy intensive. So what this, this group of researchers did was they said, hmm, and I don't know how they came up with this, but it's clever. They said, all right, well, let's take a membrane we normally use. And on top of it, we're going to make a, a very thin coating. We're talking hmm, kind of a tenth the thickness of your hair of, of a particular type of polymer that is not really great at, at going pushing car- gases through quickly but it's really selective for carbon dioxide and in fact it's you could call it molecularly sticky for carbon dioxide and so on, on top of a regular membrane put, they put this coating that's just really good at pulling carbon dioxide out over other gases and so what they were able to do is get the permeabilities kind of an order of magnitude faster and the selectivity up to well, about 150 from i think around 50 so that it's really interesting that they they made membranes that are really great at separating co2 in this context and you think, great, scientists in a room did something in a lab that sounds awesome. <laughs> but, which, by the way, it is awesome. It is so awesome. I mean, I was really excited about this and stuff. But what the, the membranes they used to make the coatings on are already used commercially. So they're not asking industries to go, oh, develop a new membrane and 20 years of technology to develop it. It's You can chemically functionalize existing membranes that are used now. And in fact, that was why I got excited about it, because I recognized one of the membranes they used as one of the ones I used in the startup company Mm. I worked in more than 20 years ago. And I went, oh, wow. So they just kind of did this next step where they showed, hey, you can use this technology. It's not even limited to these commercial membranes. And it's a way to maybe make a step forward in, in, in separating carbon dioxide. Very cool. Something we need to be able to do. Not the solution to all our problems, but mm. would yeah. certainly help. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Stacy, what do you got for us? Well, I thought I would um, talk a little bit about the broader impacts that the Russian invasion into Ukraine has had on science and scientific endeavour. So not as fun as orchids. Um, <laughs> we can talk more about orchids if you want, but this sounds very important too. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as we all know, one of the greatest sort of foundations of the cornerstones of science is collaboration, being able to share data and mm. um, and work with colleagues internationally. And some of the greatest scientific advances has come about through really effective and healthy international collaboration. But with all of the sanctions being placed on um, Russia at the moment in protest against the war, I wondered what impact that would have on current scientific projects. Um, So I had a bit of a look into it and I think... um you know, one of the most notable projects that has made the media recently is the um, ExoMars space mission, mm. um, which has hit a bit of a snag since um, the war was declared. So um, this is the European Space Agency's mission um, to Mars. So they were going to um, launch the Rosalind Franklin rover later this year. 
um, and that rover was going to be the first to drill more than two metres below the surface of Mars, um, and it had featured these really cool driving techniques, so wheels that can walk over obstacles and a um, quite sophisticated analytical laboratory capability within the within the rover itself. But essentially um, what's happened is the European Space Agency has announced that the 2022 launch window is no longer possible because of the suspension of cooperation between the agency and um, and the and the Russians. So what was to happen was that the Russians were going to supply the launch vehicle and and the landing um, uh, capabilities in Mars. Um, and so there's now um, you know they they won't be able to to mm. make that mission this year, which is really unfortunate, and it set, sort of really represents another setback for that particular mission because that was already um, deferred from 2016. So it's quite devastating for all the scientists yeah. that have worked on it, as well as the other sort of technical support staff. You can't, um, you can't just leave whenever you want for Mars. <laughs> you got to do it when Mars is close. Yeah, or, that's you know, right. approach, Approaching close to Earth. Right. Um, yes, otherwise, when it's on the other side of the sun to you us, it's kind of it. takes a little longer. Yeah, yeah. You don't want that. Yeah. 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 So that's that's out of action now. And then there's um, obviously have been, um, you know, other projects across um, Europe and, and other areas that have been put on hold because of, um, you know, suspension of cooperation with mm. Russians in protest against the war. So within a day of the invasion, Germany had um, imposed a freeze on all bilateral scientific partnerships with Russia and then several other European nations followed suit. So, um, for example, the European-led um, particle physics laboratory, so in CERN in, in Switzerland, they've ceased um, collaboration with their Russian counterparts. So Russia had observer status in their laboratory meetings and that's been um, disbanded. And similarly, CERN's instructed their scientists not to participate with other Russian collaborations. Yeah. Um, last Sunday, the UK then announced that it was cutting back um, a bulk of its research ties with Russia and funding. Um, and that will impact several research projects, um, but most notably um, some important work being carried out in the Arctic. Um, so there's 89... I believe 89 um, research um, stations in the Arctic, but 21 of them are on Russian soil. So all of that's been paused, mm. which is quite devastating. Mm. Um, and then in addition to all of that, there's also, you know, the direct impacts um, from, uh, you know, scientists in, in Ukraine and the science infrastructure in Ukraine. So um, several institutes in Ukraine focused on things like nuclear energy, um, mechanical engineering, aviation and space industries, um, and they've been impacted, including the Kaviv Institute of Physics and Technology, which um, housed a newly built um, neutron source facility, um, and uh, that has been impacted by shelling, unfortunately. So my heart really goes out to all the scientists in Ukraine who were working in these facilities and how they've been impacted, but then the broader impacts across, across the globe. Yeah, I think it's really easy for people to forget just who who gets impacted here. I mean, and you mentioned a lot of the, the Russian scientists and, you know, they're, they're not the Russian government. Exactly. And they're being heavily impacted. I know, um, I mean, even just, I think most people have these personal stories, but, you know, my company that Ray knows well, we sell a particular type of microscope across Australia and one of the components of that is no longer available because it's made by um, Ukraine. And we just, I'm not sure if you know that, yeah. Ray, I'll just tell you, if you want that polymer heater, I'm sorry, buddy, but we can't, uh, yeah. we can't sell it at the moment because that's where it's made. One of the most beautiful Christmas presents I've ever bought um, for my wife at Christmas time is this beautiful wood carving sort of um, uh, recipe sort of book holder mm. and came from this amazing family, you know, Ukraine family. And, and I looked at their site on Etsy and I'm thinking, are they still... Yeah. there are they okay you know it's yeah. like these beautiful products and things and you know there's so much of that that's being disrupted by by this but yeah the uh, impact is very very sub substantial and it will be for a substantial period of time as well absolutely and there's many russian scientists that have penned open letters to their governments that are denouncing um you know the the atrocities that are being unleashed on ukraine and then also reaching out to their international counterparts and saying can i come and work with you you yeah. know russian scientists wanting to flee as well um so that they can continue their work in other parts of the world. So, yeah. yeah. Look, it's tough. I keep saying, you know, the Russian government as opposed to yes. you know, Russian people because I think there's a really big difference between the two and, you know, all these people are, that are suffering are actually, you know, people in Russia. Correct, not, yeah. not just the surrounding countries. So, anyway, a big impact on everything, it would seem. So, hopefully it will end soon. Folks, uh, on that uh, happy note, thank you, Stacey. Um, 
What were we talking about before? <laughs> CO2 memories, cleaning up the environment. Oh, yeah. uh, it's all good stuff. We're going to take a break for a music track, folks, and when we come back, we'll be talking to our first guest from Flinders University in South Australia. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. On the line with me now is Associate Professor Sarah Cohen-Woods. Now, Sarah is a professor of psychology at Flinders University and is a member of the Arama Institute for Mental Health and Wellbeing. She leads the Behavioral Genomic and Environmental Mechanisms Lab, uh, which is located, actually, at Flinders Uni in their Innovation Centre, Innovation and Cancer Centre, I guess. Good morning, Sarah. How are you going? Morning, Shane. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Did I miss anything? No, I think you got it. (laughs) Excellent. Now, one of the things um, that we've done a lot on the show on over the many years is epigenetics. And I think this, when we saw your work, it was like, wow, more of this. This is really interesting stuff. Just give our listeners a bit of a rundown first of what, what do we mean by epigenetics? No worries. So, I mean, the way I usually talk about epigenetics is I actually bring it back to genetics first as well. Because if you think... What people are quite commonly aware of or know is that a lot of disorders are genetic. They have a heritable basis. So using eating disorders as an example, you know, there's a heritable component there. Genetics plays a role. But not everybody who has genetic risk factors goes on to develop these disorders. And that's where I think epigenetics is particularly important. And epigenetics talks about above the genome, switching these genes on and off. So you might have the risk genes, but they might not be switched off. So if you think about the genes being um, the score, the music score, so all the notes in the music song you just listened, that's your DNA, but your epigenetics is how that musical score is then expressed, the highs and the lows. And that's where the epigenetics comes in, the switching on and off of these risk genes. So while you may have some risk genes for particular conditions, they may not be switched on because you haven't been exposed to particular environments that in turn switch those genes on and off through epigenetic mechanisms. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I know if uh, if eating a pineapple a week switches anything on, I am absolutely screwed because it's something that I'm obsessed <laughs> with and I do. But what sort of things, what sort of environmental things would switch some of these things on? I mean, what are examples of that? Well, I mean, the exam- examples are broad and many. Um, you've got your more very clear environmental factors such as food, so things that you put into your body. Obviously, there's chemistry there. And that can, in turn, result in epigenetic changes. Um, but also things like exercise can result or is correlated with epigenetic changes. And what I do most of my work on is stress. So we know that experiences of stress is correlated with changes in epigenetic signatures of particular genes. Um, some of my um, more recent work, we're looking at um, chronic low stress in childhood. So using socioeconomic um, status as mm. a... As a, as a model. So that's the idea that some, some children are in lower socioeconomic access areas. They experience less privileges than others. And if that's correlated with longer term epigenetic changes, which we're finding it, it indeed is, and those um, markers are correlated in turn with mortality and things such as that. Yeah, very interesting. And, you know, when, when I think about this, I think, well, what, what do we mean by sort of low levels of stress? I mean, I, I think I, I grew up in the West Melbourne, wasn't the most affluent area. Uh, red hair, that can stress the crap out of you too. You know, I'm <laughs> glad it's all gone. Um, but, you know, if I think about some of those low-level stresses, they were, they were there. They weren't some of the extreme stresses that some people in our community grows up with, which are really quite profound. But, you know, where do you have to be in that range to be able to see these sorts of effects? Um, I think that's a really important question. Um, so it, it depends somewhat, I think, on how you conceptualise socioeconomic stress as well. Um, and that's a whole um, hoo-ha, if you like, within and of itself. Researchers seem to dip in and out of different factors that they decide to find that. We've tried to have a look at financial factors, family structural factors, educational factors, the whole um, realm of them. And what we've also been doing in our work is not just taking one snapshot. We've looked at the entire childhood period and whether consistently higher or lower, there's a difference in, in, in that. And what we've actually found is that the most profound difference we're seeing is, of course, those with higher socioeconomic access um, have better outcomes relative to lower but also those who started higher and then for whatever reason their life has taken them through a course that has brought them down in the socioeconomic ladder 
those individuals are showing um, greater issues, I guess, with their epigenetic signatures, if you like, that are correlated with mortality. So it's also about, I like to think, your internal homeostasis, what you're used to. And if you change that drastically, that may have an effect too. Yeah, gee, none of us have gone through any change lately. So that's good good to know over the last couple of years. Um, with with kids, I know you're looking at what we pass mm. on to to our mm. offspring. This is this is like seriously scary stuff. I mean, what what's going on there? Is it possible that my stressed environment when I was younger could have been passed on in some way genetically to my children? So this is a really fascinating area, and I came into it very skeptically. I tend to be quite skeptical. Mm. Um, I thought, oh, come on, you know, there's a lot of evidence, absolutely, that men specifically um, who have had very traumatic experiences prior to conceiving their children, their children have worse behavioural outcomes, depression, anxiety, drug use. But there's a range of things that could drive that, right? It could be the way that, you know, home interactions, other interactions and opportunities when that child grows up. But there was a study in Sweden a few years ago that showed that men who had lost a parent early in their life, that their children then had worse birth outcomes. So this is at birth, before the social factors come in, Mm. more premature, uh, lower birth weight, and specifically if they'd lost a parent around the ages of 8 to 12, which is a really important period in sperm maturation. So there's certainly some emerging evidence that that could be the case. I always say it very cautiously. The animal studies are are looking really interesting. There's a lot of more and more evidence in animal studies of this intergenerational epigenetic inheritance. And in human studies, we're only just starting to look at it. So there's a lot of phenotypic inheritance where you know, yes, if if you've had an experience of a lot of stress early in your life, that could you know, that's correlated with outcomes in your children. But we're only just beginning to understand the molecular mechanisms. And that's the work that we're doing, where we're looking at early life stress in men. And if that correlates with changes in their sperm and in turn in, in the babies that are born to them. Mm. And so, I mean, say this is all true. Let's say this, this is um, something that, you know, we may find out. And, you know, when we think about how evolution yeah. works and how we adapt as, as, as a species and so forth, you know, it's, it stems to reason that there might be something in that. You know, I can imagine 10 years from now we talk about this like it's just normal. Yeah, everyone knows it. So, you know, it could go that way. But what, what can we actually do about it? Is there, are there sort of ways in which we can offset this? Because obviously we don't want to sort of say, well, you know, I was really stressed, so my kids are done. <laughs> yeah, they're screwed as well. You know, like we want to be able to offset that. I mean, what, what's possible? I think that's a really another really interesting question. Um, obviously, I'm biased, but um, when we started doing our genomic work, because I started in, in genomics and risk genomics for disorders, we, we we thought, you know, if you tell somebody that they're at a high risk for, say, cardiovascular disease, they'll go out for a run because they know the genetic risk is high. They will go and do an environmental thing that we know helps. But the evidence since has actually been to the contrary. It disempowers people. It's, it's like you say, they go, oh, sod it, I'm screwed. I, I'm not going to go for a run now. You know, I'm at a high risk. And I think you need to think about this in epigenetics. So we are actually also doing some stuff within this context where we're trying out an epigenetic education where if we explain to people how the environment can alter their genetic risk and do it through epigenetics, if this will then motivate people to engage in behaviour, And more recently, we're adding on this intergenerational thing of where we're targeting men who haven't yet had children to say, look, your experiences, your exposures now could affect the generations you you haven't yet had. Are you going to start engaging in more positive behaviours, lifestyle behaviours, sorry, specifically in the context of obesity because it's a bit easier? Stress is harder because, as you say, these are things that are out of an individual's control, their socioeconomic life and some of the traumas we experience, we have no control over. But I think there we're going to shift that educational um, focus to encourage people to participate in mental health interventions before ideally, you know, they go on to have kids to really encourage that engagement with mental health interventions that we know work and we know men can be particularly resistant to participating in as well. Yeah, I think normalising the, the utilisation of mental health services and, and thinking of it as health, not think, thinking of it as yeah. mental health, is, yeah. is where we need to be heading. One last question for you there, Sarah. Um, with regards to you know that sort of intervention approach where we actually you know try and get people working towards being you know i don't know less stressed what whatever all of those things together what kind of time frame are we talking about do i need to do that two weeks before i have a conceive a child or does it have to be sort of you know does it need a couple of years of you know free time for my Surely system that's the right time 
Yeah. Now's the right time. Surely the right Look, I mean, that's how long is a piece of string. We're not there yet. And I, I couldn't possibly answer that. And we don't know. And that's where we need the research. And that's what we're pushing for. But, um, you know, how long is a piece of string? If, if you know about it, you've got to start on it. And I say this completely hypocritically because my treadmill is out that hasn't been used for about a long while. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. we know the interventions are there. We just need to start engaging in them. But it is about trying to figure out how to motivate people to do so. Yeah, now look, I agree. And there's a new new uh, leisure center that's opened up a block and a half from me. It's got a beautiful pool and I am going to use it. It's been open for about six months, but uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. I, I'm waiting you know. for hours to open down the road. Yeah. That's when I'll start. <laughs> well, try and get there on open day so you can commit. I think, um, you know, pay the money and maybe you'll go back a second time. It, it's tough, though. It's tough for people to be motivated. Sarah, thanks for chatting about this. I think it's a really interesting area. One of our old uh, crew members years ago is, you know, he works on twins all the time and epigenetics has been his thing ah, for many I know years. him. I yes, you that. know Jeff Craig. Um, you I know, do. These, these, these areas are, are ones. I know they're very difficult to prove and very difficult to dive into and you need that kind of things like twin studies to to really be able to to do the work but it's fascinating that you know we could be actually passing these things on Mm -hmm. and whenever I think about this work and I think of some of the traits I've picked up from my dad and they're often social traits too they're not just you know physical traits they're social traits and you think geez is that is that somehow being passed down genetically or is it just because I lived with him for 20 odd years you know like and it's it's hard to tell it's hard to distinguish so thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo and good luck with the ongoing work. Thank you, Shane. Thanks so much, folks. That was Associate Professor Sarah Cohen-Woods, a professor in psychology at Flinders University. We're going to take a break for some important uh, station announcements, and we'll be back shortly with our second guest. Triple R. And we're back, folks. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. On the line with us now is our second guest, Dr. Amy Penney, is from the Centre for Alcohol Policy Research at La Trobe University. We're getting a lot of good guests from La Trobe. Good morning, Amy. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. I'm, I'm well. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, look, exciting stuff. I think next week we're talking uh, to someone else because you guys just got that amazing gift of, I think, $45 million for autism research, which we're not going to talk about now, but um, we'll talk about next week. It's pretty impressive. Now, um, alcohol research, give us a bit of a lowdown of where we are in terms of the use of alcohol in Australia. I mean, I know, you know if we talk about cigarettes – um, everyone knows bad, bad, bad. We've done a lot of work indicating how bad this is for health, but I don't think we've done the same, taken the same approach with alcohol. So, where do we stand? Yeah, look, um, I think you're probably right in some ways um, in that alcohol holds this in-between space um, between sort of illicit drugs and and. And, and cigarettes on on that side where we've decided they're bad, and then some things that are okay as long as you use in moderation, like coffee and alcohol mm. and, and other sorts of things that fall in that category. Um, there is a lot of public health um, progress that has been made with regards to alcohol. Um, we have definitely seen a levelling off of per capita consumption and even a small decrease. Um, and in particular, um, which is the work I'm involved in, is big drops in youth drinking. Mm. And so I think we are making some progress. Um, where we are still seeing high levels of consumption tends to be in middle-aged to older groups, um, and often um, these are thought to be related to habitual practices. So um, once you become used to doing something at 5 o'clock every day, it becomes very hard to break that habit. Yeah, indeed. Do you have a feeling for what's causing that drop in the so the youth uptake of alcohol or use? Is that something that is a result of programs we've done or is it just something that's happening in the background? It's really quite remarkable. If you look at um, statistics over um, half, de- uh, half a century, it's very uncommon for a particular uh, age, a p- particular young people, to be driving such a change um, in drinking. So we've we've been lucky to secure a number of research grants to investigate what might be driving factors in in um, attitudes and use towards alcohol amongst young people. Essentially, over a period of about the last five or six years, um, a big group of us have um, ruled out things like. Sub policy or substitution with digital technology, which were two of the main policies. Um, and what really seems to be happening is that young people are increasingly becoming risk averse. 
So it's not just alcohol that's going down. It's um, use of other substances. It's um, engagement in risky behaviours such as um, uh, risky or protected sex, um, fighting, truancy. So young people in general uh, seem to be more uh, worried about the future, worried about um, big stories, uh, worried about um, economic security and are uh, tending to therefore uh, avoid risky behaviours of which alcohol is one. Yeah, that's fascinating. It, it, it's interesting if you'd said to me that they're, they're doing it because our society is just getting more educated and smarter around some of the risks to our health, I'd say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But but a, a general risk aversion um, across so many different things is um, is is really interesting. In, in terms of the, the sort of the health impacts, um, what, what do we see across the board in terms of alcohol by comparison to things like smoking and I guess the big one that we don't talk about enough is things like sugar in our foods. I mean, how, how bad is, is alcohol in, in that context? Yeah, so look, um, alcohol is um, causally associated with um, more than 200 disease conditions. Um, it is um, a risk factor, increases um, risk significantly for a number of cancers. Um, and there, there is a growing consensus in the public health that there is no safe level of alcohol consumption. There used to mm. be um, a, an industry line that a moderate amount of alcohol consumption could be good for heart health. That has been um, disproven. Um, and so it really is something that, um, again, um, with this, there's this middle ground where you do have to balance out um, things like social connection and pleasure with um, very real uh, health problems. Yeah. Um, and so one of those really tricky uh, drugs that is hard to um, form um, like a consensus, an opinion. With cigarettes, it was much easier. Um, you know, this is really, really bad for you. It's, uh, with alcohol, there's there, there are these, um, uh, there's just, I don't know if it's um, about the pleasure and the social connection or if it's about um the industry being stronger and, and more successful in creating those messages and making us feel that way. Um, but, yeah, the, the health effects seem to be less salient for people. People seem to either know about them less or disregard them more. Yeah, I think it's interesting too, like when you look at the, the communication of the science and the way that's done in this space, there's some real oddities by comparison to cigarettes. I mean, I, I don't remember in you know, probably the last 30 years, maybe when I was a kid working in the milk bar selling cigarettes, um, you know, there was a promotion that these things were fresh and alpine and, all, you know, there were all these these sort of um, real misleading marketing tools that were being used. But with with alcohol, it's different. You know, we're, we're hearing in some cases from scientists, you know, a certain amount of red wine is good for your heart. We, we, we've heard those stories, which makes it very problematic in terms of getting out, you know, a consistent message when, and you mentioned coffee earlier, you know, I just, I noticed, I think it was just a week, a week and a half ago, there was another series of articles out about how coffee is good for you for these three reasons. And I thought, yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, I'll wait until next month when I read the next article that tells me why coffee is bad for me. And, and while you've got that sort of duality of messaging, it is very hard to get a consistent approach. And it does seem as though that's sort of diminishing a bit though with alcohol. I mean, I don't remember in the last few years hearing as many sort of stories out of our scientific community about you know red wine being good for you for example do you feel that that it's sort of dropping off a bit i feel there's definitely been some progress even in the, the 10 or 15 years that i've been working in the field and it is really interesting talking to young people because we, we're saying you know because they've they, they've almost come to the conclusion that alcohol isn't as cool as it as as mm. my, my generation thought it was or it's um, losing control, especially is 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 really um, something that they don't like and see a weakness. And I, I I say, you know, did you did you learn about this at school? Is it coming from your parents? And they can't really pinpoint a particular place where it's coming from. I think it's just in general. Um, there's there's just been a growing like it's a really slow progression about understanding that well this is actually problematic this is harmful and they're getting messages from media from parents from school and little drips and drabs and and peers now as well um that is going to hopefully you know that cohort will age into a cohort of younger drinkers um but it, but but the big but there is with covid um what we often see in in trends data is um something big like a recession or a war or a big shift in in situational circumstances and and particularly at the global level, can change a pattern or a trajectory mm. of alcohol 
assumption. So I'll be fascinated to see what happens in the next few years um, after, you know, there, there is some suggestions that people were drinking more at home during lockdown. What, what does that mean for for patterns in the future? Yeah, drinking more at home. I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about there, uh, Amy. I'm I'm sure that hasn't happened to any of our listeners at all. But uh, it's interesting, though, we are more aware, I think, of what's going on there and we're more aware, you know, of, of our consumption and so forth. And a lot of people are cooking more of their own foods. You know, I think there's been some, some changes and shifts in the way we do things and, and, you know, going to a bar has other risks associated with it now. So we've become more aware of risks overall. Um Thanks so much for chatting to us today, Amy. Good luck with this um, work. I think it's really important. It's really great to see that this is um, this change is occurring, and hope hopefully we can work out exactly why and cement that and and promote it even further into the future. Because it's good to hear that people are starting to wise up to the fact that you know alcohol is dangerous, sugar is dangerous, cigarettes are dangerous. All of these things are problematic for our health. And sadly, unlike you know a broken leg from playing sport, you don't find out until years later that the effect is cumulative and that's been really problematic. So that that often makes it very hard for people to make the right choices but thanks so much amy and good luck thanks very much folks uh, that was dr amy penne from la trobe university's center for school center for alcohol policy research get all these names out um we're going to take a break for some important station announcements and we'll be back uh, Lyndon's going to do a story for us in just a few minutes triple r Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 R. We're all scrambling around the studio here because we're not used to being in the same room together. Dr. Linden, before I hand over to you, I just wanted to uh, remind people, I, I tweeted out the details of this on my Twitter feed, so if people are interested, they can have a look. But Bron from Radio Marinara handed me the sheet and said, Shane, you shall announce this during your show. And, of course, I always do a Bron us. Uh, but there's a Marine Science Careers event on Saturday the 9th of April. That's next Saturday at 10 a.m. at the University of Melbourne Parkville campus. And uh, I think if you're interested in marine science, uh, this is a thing to go to. So um, have a look at my Twitter feed if you're looking for the details of that. I did put it out earlier this morning, but it's an AMSA event, the AMSA, uh, Student Society, I think. Australian Australian Marine Marine Science Association. Association. Yep. Yep. So I think if you Google them, you'll find it. But uh, there's morning tea and a barbecue lunch included. So get on in there. It's only 15 bucks and you can learn all about marine science. Pretty cool. In the engineering block C. I don't know where that is, Ray. You'd know. Block C. It's not an attractive building, but it's easy to find. <laughs> I was selling it so well. Yeah, seriously. It's not about the building. It's about getting away from buildings and into the ocean. Sounds yeah, like sharks, people. Too. Sharks. Yeah. Sharks are fun. Sharks are awesome. <laughs> Lyndon, over to you. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Well, I'm, it's quite interesting telling this story, uh, following up from Amy Penne just before, talking about something that we want to be good for us, but deep down that we know is probably bad for us. So what I wanted to talk about today was this experiment. Now, the experiment is almost 50 years old, but I still wanted to talk about it, um, partly because it does cover this topic that is still very relevant to us, and there's lots of research that's still done in this area. I wanted to talk about this experiment because it's even more relevant with the pandemic, you know, um, what's covered in this experiment is something that we've really paid extra attention to as adults and children over the last couple of years. But I also wanted to talk about this experiment because it's just a, a beautiful, natural, accidental study that amazing science is made of. Hmm. Now, this experiment is called the No-Tell experiment. Has anybody heard of this? I'm afraid not. It was no. done. Heard of a no tell hotel? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. It was done in Canada. I've been punched and then said no tell. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not that kind of secret no, experiment. Okay. Yeah. It was done in Canada in the 1970s, and it was led by this scientist uh, who sadly passed away last year, uh, Tannis mm. Macbeth Williams, and she was a psychology professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and she was really interested in the impact of television on people and society. So TV had been around since the 50s, and when it came about, from what I can understand, the psychologists at the time were kind of left a bit flat-footed, and a lot of Mm -hmm. studies had been done, but they were about, you know, studying people who had decided not to watch much TV or had decided to watch a lot of TV, or people were kind of paid, oh, hey, stop watching TV for a few weeks and let's see what happens to you and your brain or whatever. Were, were you guys old You guys aren't old enough that your parents at one stage said, it'll rot your brain. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Did you get that? 
Yeah, that Every... was like, but that was grounded in some weird fear of cathode ray tubes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some of It'll know, rot your brain. Every single pop science article I read in preparation for this story said that. Yeah. Every single yeah, one of yeah. them. Okay. Didn't yep. matter how old it was. They yep. all said that. <laughs> uh, anyway, so these experiments, you know, they were kind of, there's a few confounding variables there. People had already made decisions about their relationships with TV mm. or they had been bribed essentially to behave a different way. And so, you know, this, the results of those early experiments were a bit suggestive but not super conclusive. People were still worried about what TV was doing to society. Tannis didn't quite know what to do. And then she got this letter. I'm pretty sure it was a letter that said, hey, did you know, way out in the Rockies in British Columbia, about nine hours drive from Vancouver, there is a town that doesn't have any television. It's just a town, just a regular town. It's called Boringville. <laughs> It's called No-Tell. Oh, it's called No-Tell. This was the name that the the researchers gave to the town. They wanted to keep it anonymous. But it wasn't a town of crazy hippies or people who are afraid of technology or cathode ray tubes destroying everybody's eyeballs. We should just say, say, you know, just to caveat there, that your home is not boring if you don't have a television. I should add that and apologise to anyone who doesn't have a TV. And and no hippies are crazy. No, no, that's... And we shouldn't use the word crazy. That's that's true, Like, are we good? Are we okay? Yes, we're good. I don't mean to offend anybody. I thought this story would be interesting to radio listeners on a Sunday morning. Who are not watching sport, they're just listening to something as opposed to watching something. But it wasn't full of people who'd made those decisions. It it was the town that actually petitioned to get television. It was just a fluke of geography that they were in this dead spot. And the rest of North America had had TV for 20 years, Mm. and this tiny little town didn't have any TV. Interesting. But it was coming. They were putting up a tower. They had a few months before before television was coming into this town. And so Tannis was like, oh, Oh my goodness, we have to act really quickly. This is this is a natural experiment. We don't have to manipulate people. We don't have to, you know, adjust for different population variabilities or whatever. We've just got a regular group of people who don't have television and we could go and see what they're like, what the people are like versus the people around them who it's have like had TV. It's exactly. It yeah. was a pure beautiful natural experiment. So Tannis pulled together all these people and they scrambled to think of as many different studies as they could and they identified this town, Notel, it had had about 650 people and they also found a couple of similar towns that had the same similar population, similar demographics, uh, similar services, you know, those kinds of things. But one town could only access the public broadcasting TV channel, so that mm-hmm. was Unitel, they called okay. the town Unitel, one television channel and then there was another town again very similar but the only significant difference was that it had four tv channels so minitel multitel oh, multitel <laughs> no tell unitel and multitel okay. right so they had their three... This is not what the towns called themselves. No, obviously. no, yeah, they yeah, just yeah. wanted it. They wanted For a second, you had me on the no-tell thing. Thinking, is this actually the name of the town? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I didn't find out the name of the town. It's, yeah. It was very, um, you know, kept, kept quite secretive. Hmm. Okay, so they thought about all these experiments and then they drove out. They did the big drive out to these towns and they did as many experiments as they could. You know, TVs were arriving on trucks. Like, it was coming. It's it was Christmas, imminent, baby. you know. It was, the world was changing. Yeah, but the actual... Wow televisions that were already set up in people's homes they could only get static maybe a little bit of blurry sesame street or something yeah. and that was well they didn't it. know how to tune the televisions and there was no one there to repair them <laughs> there was no service as well no service there was no service so they did experimental studies they did observational studies they got people to do a lot of different um cognitive tests fill out a lot of uh, surveys and those kinds of things this was 1973 and then the researchers drove away and thought, you know, Godspeed, good luck to you, no tell. Have fun. Yes, all the best for your future. And two years later, in 1975, they came back to the town and they went to Multitel and Unitel as well and, and conducted the experiments again to see what the impact of TV was like, you know, what, how, how this town, how these people had changed. Any guesses as to the results? So Can afraid. I'm so <laughs> afraid. <laughs> Can I ask, did they release early results prior to like letting everyone, uh, you know, put up their TV in Notel? Because they, they, t- they collected all the data before everyone was exposed to TV and then for two years they were exposed to TV, but did they... Were there any early insights before? Mm. You mean by comparing Notel with the other... Towns. Yeah. Well, I don't know. That's a good question. Mm, I wonder. That'd be the first experiment you think, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the next experiment is when we walk in. This is what I call be the max. (laughs) Prepare yourselves. 
Is we it? did not. I forgot about all the eighties tech references we'd have to get through for me to tell this story. <laughs> you to I'm sorry. No, no. But I, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Doctor Stacey. That's a good question, and it's quite an ethical question too. Mm. I don't. So I, I, I want to say there was no change. You want to say that? Yeah, that would and, be and nice. I, you know, but then I think, okay, were they more aware of what was going on around them? Like, mm. were they more connected to the rest of the country, whereas before they were more insular? Ooh, yeah. Well, I do know that the researchers tried really hard not to bring their biases in. They didn't mm. want to sway the town either way about their uh, relationship with TV. So probably they didn't share these initial kind of phase one results. But in phase two, they went back and they repeated the, um, all their experiments again. And they also looked at Multitel and Unitel. And sad to say, there were quite a few changes, um, both in adults and children. Uh, so a few that stuck out were... They got the they got the grown ups to do some lateral thinking experiments. What's the word? Um, divergent thinking activities. Okay. Yep. You know where you have to solve a problem by thinking outside the box. Yeah. And before TV was brought into Notel, the people there um, were better at solving those problems than people from the other two towns, and those who couldn't solve the problem actually tried for longer. Mm. before quitting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas after two years of TV, so I should say that after two years of television, 90% of the households in the town had TV. Right. And they watched about 22 hours of television a week. It's which not is a huge amount, but it's, it's, a, it's enough. Yeah, yeah, it was it was okay. on par with the town that only had one channel. Yeah. Um, the town that had four channels, I think they watched about 27 hours. And the average, the US average, I believe, is about 28. And what is it now? now about 150? No, no, now, it's, <laughs> now I think it's about 28. A recent study, like post I question that result I heavily. Know. <laughs> <laughs> but what, that's over a day. That's a seventh of yeah. your week. yeah. You know, what's yeah. that divided by five nights? Like yeah. it's a fair, it's a fair bit of TV. Hmm. Um, anyway, so after two years of being exposed to television, the people in Notel, um, their ability to solve these problems decreased to be a similar level to the other towns, and the people who couldn't solve the problem gave up right. earlier. Still a yeah. bit, they yeah, tried they a bit had harder. Else to do. That's it. They can't watch TV. No, Shane, that's that's exactly right. Is that exactly right? Yeah, and that, this is this <laughs> is what they found with children as well. So, the children sorry, of the did town pay for that research to be done. I just guessed it. <laughs> <laughs> the so children pretty... of the town, you know, uh, showed increased amounts of aggression. Didn't matter their gender. Didn't matter their age. Didn't that's matter Bugs their. Bunny, well, this is exactly that is Bugs yeah. Bunny. Yep. yep, and their physics knowledge would have gone down too. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, but road runner, road runner's not yeah. real. Yeah. Yeah, Gravity doesn't is, just stop like that? It doesn't. And you can't switch it off. And it doesn't switch off because you're not aware of it. And then it suddenly switches on when you realize you've fallen off a cliff. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure if they checked the physics uh, the physics knowledge of the students. That might be in a later, later part of the experiment that I haven't read yet. Uh, but, yeah, they also found that the students, yeah, their creativity went down, their reading ability went down. Mm. And the researchers said that that's what it was. It was this idea of time displacement. Because right. if you're doing television, if you're watching television, you're not doing anything else. You're not yeah. being creative. You're not interacting with your friends. You're not doing the hard yards of learning how to read. Uh, you're not even getting bored. We know, mm. we just, just like with alcohol, right, just yeah. like with our previous guest, we know that it's good for our brains to not drink <laughs> and we know that it's good for our brains to be bored, to have space, to not yep. check our phone when we're on the toilet, but we people do it. Yep. Not anyone in this room, I know, but people do it. I don't drink on the toilet. Is that what you said? <laughs> <laughs> so did you say you check your phone on the toilet? No, I, no, I didn't say that. I think other people do that. Um, <laughs> this is, Not that there's anything wrong with that. But this is what I'm saying, that without yeah. that, um, TV asks so little of you. It's so passive. Yeah. It's so it's sedentary. It's a friend. Exactly. And yeah. um, that takes away time from doing yeah. something else. And so... These results have been replicated in so many very, in so many guises since this mm. 1970s experiment. So this this was five papers that ended up being uh, published. It was published in a book, quite a very accessible book, quite easy to read, and it was a real launch pad for um, Tannis's career. And it was it's a really seminal study, right? Because yeah. it's about the only one that has this natural setup. You know, it would be a bit like trying to find a town without the internet today yeah, or video games. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's really, um, it's really hard to find a situation where that's just happening naturally, and there hasn't been 
already kind of cultural biases or genetic predisposition or, mm. you know, other um, socioeconomic factors that will have caused your relationship with television to be A or B or whatever. Um, and that's why I think this, this study is so fascinating. So I've looked at other more recent studies that have found similar things. There was a really impressive study in Japan a few years ago that looked at the brains of children who watched various amounts of TV and found that the sections in the brain that were associated with emotional response or aggression or mm. language development were different if you'd watched more TV versus less TV. Again, we could get into the epigenetics of that perhaps um, or whether it's a, you know, does TV make your brain change its shape or is your brain slightly different shape and that predisposes you to watching more TV? You know, these kinds of things. But all of those studies don't have this kind of natural setup and it's yeah. such a yeah, such a fascinating thing. And if you're interested in this, I will finish here because there's, I know there's heaps of stuff we could say about TV and the game's probably starting soon so people want to turn it on. But if you're interested in reading more about this, I came across this story from a graphic uh, a cartoon that was done online by a science communicator in Canberra called Stuart McMillan. If you want to read more about this, uh, I would encourage you to look up The Town Without Television. Mm. He tells it in such a beautiful way. Mm. And, yeah, he really tells the story of these towns, uh, the, these towns and the researchers behind it. And to me it's really, yeah, kept me thinking about, wow, what a beautiful study and what a big impact two years of television has on, on a small community. Yep. So, and yeah. video did not kill the radio stars. No, it no. It did not suck so, at television. <laughs> it was yeah. still around. Learn Audio's the, huge. Learn the yeah. story and then turn your computer off and go outside. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. Thank you so much, Lyndon. That's a really good uh, insight into, you know, that unique opportunity to study a group of people. Like, it's not – you can't do it on individuals. You need to do it on a whole town. So there's a cohesive society that you're looking at and seeing how that changes. Fearful. We've all become a little bit less, um, shall we say, innovative than we maybe were without TV, but uh, hopefully there's some benefits out there. Dr. Linden, good to see you. You too, Doc Shane. See you next week. Stacey, good to see you too. First time this year, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I think uh, I was in here once before. Oh, I can't uh, remember. No, you know, what is, what is time? I'm, what get, is time? I'm getting older, I can't remember. <laughs> Dr. Ray, it's been two days since I've seen you. Yeah, twice yeah, in one week. It's uh, yeah. probably too much. I'm good for a month. Yeah, we're yeah. good for a month. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll leave it a bit. Just a little wear off. <laughs> Folks, uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We'll chat to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. And then we're going to hand over to the amazing team from Eat It, who are right next door looking at me through the glass, very eager to start. Have a great weekend. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.